Like many of us, maybe a week ago this time, uh, you were sitting at a church on Easter Sunday, maybe here, maybe somewhere else, um, and focusing on a particular morning where we focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the central part in the gospel message of God's great love for us, um, where we recognize the personal implications that that has for us, that God went so far on our behalves that he sent his only son to die on a cross for us, and, the, and again, the personal implications that has. Um, well, this morning, he is still risen, and I want to continue in light of that to talk about the implications that go beyond us and talk about the relationships uh, that God has put in our life. And so, uh, before we do that, I want to ask you for a second to just think about rules, the rules that you live by, uh, the rules of your relationships, maybe in your family, maybe at work, um, maybe on a sports team. Um, we all have uh, different, different rules, and occasionally what happens in the different environments we find ourselves in, something comes along that's a game changer. Like it's a rule that changes or something happens, and it changes that, that relationship forever. So maybe in a relationship it's a very positive or negative experience, and that relationship is never the same. Or maybe at work um, a new employee comes in, or there's a new boss, or there's a new direction that the company is headed, and it changes the rules of how we operate uh, and think Moving on. Uh, in sports, it's probably the easiest area to uh, use in, to find an illustration. Uh, in the NBA, in 1950, the Fort Wayne Pistons defeated the Minneapolis Lakers by a score of 19 to 18. An NBA basketball game. And what happened later was a rule that came along that changed the game forever. The 24-second clock. And all of a sudden... You didn't show up and pay for a ticket to watch grown men play keep away. You actually, they were forced, offenses were forced to try and score within 24 seconds before turning the ball over. And that changed the game forever. It changed the direction. It changed the quality of the game for the people who would watch. And so we all have rules that we live by. Um, for most of us, when it comes to the relationships, the people we work with, the people in our families, we, we have rules in our families and we don't write them down and they, they don't, we may not even know exactly what they are, but there's some sort of form of do unto others as what they do unto you. Um, do unto others as what you think they deserve to be done unto. Do unto others what you think is going to get them to do unto you what you want to be done unto you, right? Or some crazy mashup of all of these things that affect the way we govern our relationships in, in, in our life. And um, I have a family with three boys, and uh, there's a strong adherence to an eye for an eye in my family. Um, our boys, if there is chaos that erupts from the backseat of the car while we're driving, uh, no doubt the minute we address it, what do we hear first? He hit me first. Of course he hit you first. And why do they do that? Why would, why would that be the, the base response? Like why would that be what triggers behavior in my, my boys? It's because of my wife. Um, she, 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 when she sees one of them, you know, get hit, she gets in their face. And she's like, you're going to take that from him? No, you get him back. You get back. No, no, of course not. We don't have family meetings, family conversations around the dinner table about, you know, we're just not really seeing you guys exact justice on one another like we'd like. You know, could you ramp that up a bit? None of that. We, there, it doesn't take coaching. It doesn't take encouragement. It's just, it's hardwired into us. We respond, we treat people based on the way they treat us. And then something strange happens. For many of us, we become 
a Christian. You, maybe it's when you were young, maybe it was later in life. You begin a new relationship in your life now, and it's a relationship with God. But the characteristics that govern that relationship are all different. It's based on unconditional grace, unconditional mercy, and love, and acceptance. And we go to church, and we sing these songs with these profound themes when you look at the words that, that we sing about our, our God and our Heavenly Father. And it's amazing, and it's a beautiful thing. And then we go back out into the real world where it's mean and it's competitive and it's an eye for an eye and we retreat back into do unto others as they've done unto me and we compartmentalize. So we have one set of rules for how we have relationship with God between me and my heavenly father and then a completely other set of rules that govern our relationship with the people that he's put in our lives. And um, it's an interesting thing that we see throughout the New Testament. The writers... um, they reflect the same idea that our relationship with God is reflected in our relationship with the people that he's put in our lives. Or think of it this way. The health and maturity of your faith, of your relationship with God, can be gauged, can be seen in light of the health and maturity of the people that he's put in your lives. Let's look at some examples. Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus talking. He says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with them. Then come and offer your gift. So in other words, you're at the temple. We might think well, God's most important, right? You show up and you do make sure you acknowledge the God thing first. And God says, listen, you're at the temple. You're worshiping me. I don't want that. Go and make sure that this relationship, this brother or sister, go and make sure that that's right first. Then come back to the altar. John, uh, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 2 says this. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. In other words, you cannot claim to be in a right relationship with God and hate the people that he's put in your life. John chapter 13. A new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples. If you go to church every Sunday. Read your Bible more. Get the big Christian fish, slap it on the back of your car. Bam, now they know. That's how everyone's going to know. It's right there. It's on the back of my car. This is how they will know you're my disciples. If you love one another. In Matthew, Jesus was asked, um, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. To which the questioner might have interrupted and said, I didn't ask for a second. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's asked one question, and Jesus does not divorce the two issues. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says the second is like it. And that's disturbing. Because if my relationship with God, if my faith was just between me and God, I can have it going on, and you would never know. I can be like, I'm good with God. I go to church every Sunday. I've got all of these things going on. I show up. I pray. You know, I, I, I can just tell you everything, and you wouldn't know the difference. You, can't, you have no idea. I can keep you fooled. But love your neighbor as yourself. You can, 
you can check up on me now, can't you? If you know me, you have insight to my life, you know what kind of person I am. Now all of a sudden, you have insight into my life, to my spiritual life, into my faith. Do the people who have insight into your life, do they see reflected the love and faith, love and faithfulness to God that you would claim to have? When Jesus showed up, um, oh, I'm sorry, I wanted to say, um, it's a lot easier to have religion that is just about me and God and about believing the right things and making sure that everything between me and God is great and stop right there. But we can't, we cannot, God reveals that we cannot divorce our faith from how we treat the people around us because the cross was a game changer. It changed the rules, not only bringing profound significance to us and our eternity, but it changed the rule by which we are now to live with the people around us. And it would be convenient to divorce the two things, but God doesn't show much interest in a faith that is confined to internal, intellectual acknowledgments and feelings and is removed from how it treats other people. Jesus didn't let the religious leaders of his day get away with that, and I don't think God's going to let us get away with that either. If I insist on treating you based on your performance, I will probably eventually find reasons to not forgive you or to not like you or to not want to accept you. But if I view you in light of what God has done for me, that changes everything. In the book of Ephesians, we're going to look at a passage here uh, that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. It was a, a new church that was uh, starting up in a very uh, diverse culture. Um, it, there was a, a lot of worship of different gods and, and different people that were brought together in, in Ephesus. The temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the world, um, was there. And Paul is writing a letter to uh, the church there. And this is what he says, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 1. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. If you think of the word calling as an invitation, live a life worthy of this invitation that you've received. And when you receive an invitation, if you receive an invitation to a wedding, you know there's certain expectations that come along with that, what you're going to wear, what it's going to be like when you go there. If you receive an invitation to accept a new position at work, you know there's certain expectations that come along with that, that invitation, that if you're going to accept this position, you're going, to, you're going to produce this kind of workload, you're going to show up at this time, you're going to ex- be expected to lead or to do this. When we receive an invitation, there are expectations we know that go along with it. And this is when Paul's now going to, in, in verse 2 here, he's going to explain what that, what that is, what it looks like to live a life worthy of that invitation. And this is where we might expect him to say, go to church more, pray more, read your Bible more. That's how you're worthy of the, of the invitation. But he doesn't. He doesn't give a spiritual discipline or some moral boundary, which are all important things. But this is what he says. To be worthy of the calling you have received, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. That's relationship. That affects what kind of parents we are. That affects what kind of son or daughter you are. That affects what kind of sibling you are. That affects what kind of co-worker that you are. If we respond, but I go to church, I give, I believe the right things. I came on Easter Sunday and I said, he is risen indeed at the exact right time when everyone said he is risen to me. I think God would say, great. Now be humble and gentle 
patient. And I want you to bear with people who are unbearable. Because as a new creation in Christ, the rules of the game have changed for you and me. We are no longer to treat people how we think they deserve to be treated. And here we have to examine what we really believe about our faith and what it means to be in a right relationship with God. Because even the disciples still struggling this in their final moments with Jesus as they're arguing and fighting with each other, if you remember, um, over who's going to have the best seat in the kingdom of God, who's going to get shotgun in the kingdom of heaven. And they're fighting and arguing about it. And Jesus says, it should not be so with you. My followers, it should not be, this is not, the rest of the world, they operate this way. I understand there's a power play and you fight to get what you can, but it should not be so with you. God doesn't give much credit to faithfulness to him when it's divorced from how we treat the people that he has put in our lives. To live a life worthy of God's invitation to us, we must extend to others what God has extended to us. Paul goes on, first he says, you must be humble. And humility is difficult when it comes to being humble with other people because you treat people in regards to kind of, you know, how you view them. And, and when I view people, um, you know, we kind of assess others, each other's character, you know. Uh, character is that thing that, you know, you, you want. I want my family. I want my sons. I want the people who are closest to me. I want them to have good character, be people of character. I want them, even if it means they have to make hard decisions to do what it means to be a person of character, that's what I want for them. That's what I want for myself, even if I'm not always willing to make the sacrifices to be that. And the reality is, is we all have character flaws, right? But I'm going to let this service in on a secret. Your character flaws, they bother me a lot more than my own character flaws do. <laughs> I'm just letting you know, if, if I probably spent enough time with you, your character flaws would be what stood out first. I, this is the way I... I'm just, this is a confession. I see things I don't believe that that should be. I, but that's, that is how I feel. And, and maybe if you're like me, if you're being honest, maybe that's you too. Other people's character flaws, their issues, they bother you a lot more than your own. Don't high-five your spouse and be like, he's right. Yours totally bother me right, way more than my own. No. Um, but Paul says, I want you to be humble. Why? He doesn't deserve for me to be humble around him. She doesn't deserve it. But Philippians tells us that when Christ went to the cross, he humbled himself. He put you ahead of him. He put me ahead of him. And God says, now I want you to put other people ahead of yourself. And which, if we respond, but he doesn't deserve it. But if you knew my brother, if you knew the people I lived with, God would say, yeah, but you didn't deserve it either. The cross was a game changer. To live a life worthy of the invitation is to live a life where I do for others what was done through Christ for me. The second word he uses is gentle. Now, gentle is difficult because if you're like me, um, like if I, heard, if I heard a rumor going around and you said, hey, you know Jeremy? He's pretty humble. I'd be like, oh, that's good. I'll post it on Facebook so you can like it. <laughs> then, but if, you, if I heard a rumor going around that said, you know Jeremy? He's pretty gentle. Yeah, that kind of like conflicts with my manhood. No thanks. I don't want, you can find something else, you know. But this word gentleness is not what we culturally associate um, oftentimes with the word uh, gentleness and oftentimes translated as meekness in the Bible. Uh, Roger, when we did the series on the fruit of the spirit, I think Roger preached on the fruit of the spirit on gentleness and talked about how this attribute, gentleness, is really strength under control. And so gentleness, what this means is 
when you are the authority at work and you've told them a hundred times not to do that and they do it again anyway and you are right and you have this opportunity to power up and get in people's face and let them know that just how right you were and how stupid their decision was, you get control. And you power down and you deal with it not being a slave to your emotion, but controlling your emotion. You be gentle. For me, as a dad, this means when I'm right or the rules, the expectations had clearly been laid out there, and for my sons, they were not clearly met, and I have every reason to let them know how displeased or frustrated or angry or bothered I am by their inability to obey me. I take a deep breath. And I remember, I need to be gentle. Because how many times could God in heaven have looked at me and said, Jeremy, I'm in charge. I've told you. I've told you a hundred times. And now look, you went and did it anyway. How many times could my heavenly father have, set, have pulled me aside and said, fine, you're going to just, if that's the way you're going to act, then just, just go, just deal with your own consequences of your own decision. And just walked away and said, have a nice life. But instead, he's the heavenly father who stands at the end of the driveway with his arms open, waiting for the prodigal son to come back. The next word is patient. And patient, I think, is not something that I'm wired to be. And you probably think that too. I don't know many people who claim that just patience is really easy for them. But God says... And Paul challenges us in a, living a life worthy of the calling that we need to be patient. And what if in those intense moments of frustration where we're disappointed or we're hurt or we're angered again by the people who maybe they, they bother us regularly, what if we had the presence of mind just to stop long enough to think, how many times has God been patient with me? How, many, how long did I run away and God waited? How many times did I say, God, never again? And then I did it again. And God still waited. How many promises did I break? And God waited. How patient has God been with you? And it's through that lens, not through what people deserve, that we are to respond to the people that he's put in our lives. And finally, he concludes with bearing with one another in love. And sooner or later, and Paul would have known this, he would have bumped into people who were unbearable. We have individuals, people who we find unbearable, and we have to decide, do I deserve them? Do I treat them how they deserve to be treated? Or in light of what my Heavenly Father did for me, in hopes that I can live a life worthy of the calling that He's given me? Am I going to go beyond last Sunday where I proclaimed a risen Savior, where I proclaimed the resurrection and recognize the profound implications it has for me? Will I go beyond that now and now take that grace, that mercy, and extend that to the people that I find unbearable. As followers of Christ, the cross was a game changer. This new kingdom, new people who God wanted to reside among are not meant to play by the same old rules of do unto others as others do unto me. When things or people become unbearable, remove your focus from the person and, and pause long enough to ask, in light of what God did for me, 
this challenge I know is difficult. When we lose sight of the invitation that God's extended to us, we get in trouble relationally. When we lose sight, we get in trouble with friends and family and, and relationships because if our response is based on what he or she did or said, rather than how God treated me, we just fall into the same old pattern. It's back to the, it's back to the do unto others as they do unto me, that, that world. But if this brand new standard of asking in light, God, in light of what you've done for me, through that I'm going to now treat other people, we can learn to forgive. We can learn to serve others, to submit, to accept. And we'll have to confront sometimes. You'll have to make wise boundaries in relationships where people want to abuse grace. That, that's going to happen. It's not rolling over and playing dead. But when grace becomes the filter through which we view other people, it will change your heart. Before I conclude here, I want to read one quote to you from uh, C.S. Lewis. It's my way of ensuring that I say one smart thing this morning. Um, C.S. Lewis said this, to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exceptions, and God means what he says. In conclusion, this morning, I want to say one thing to maybe a small group of people here. Or maybe you know someone who needs to hear this and, and you can encourage them with it. If you're at a stage where you're coming to church for the first time, um, or you've got, you went to church and you're coming back for the first time in a long time, uh, or you came last Sunday for Easter and someone bet you you couldn't make it two weeks in a row and you're winning, then here's what I want to say to you. If for some reason, if, if that classifies you because you have had a difficult time with faith, You've had a difficult time with what it means to be a Christian or what it means to be part of a church. Then maybe you, like so many other people, and maybe not at all, but if this applies to you, perhaps it's because you have somewhere in your life had a very bad church experience. Or you've watched a loved, a loved one be, be very hurt by a faith community, by a person who claimed to be a Christian, who claimed to be part of a church. Um, let me say this. I know I wasn't there, but let me tell you probably what happened. Forgiven people forgot to forgive. Unconditionally accepted people who were saved by an amazing grace forgot the cost and the love and the distance their Heavenly Father went to reach out to them. And they forgot to accept. People who were unconditionally included in this huge plan that God has to redeem and restore and reclaim his people. They forgot how or why they were included in that. And they decided to exclude you or exclude someone that you know. If you fall into a category like that, please hear this. Don't confuse the church with God. He is way better than us. 
It's our desire to have a community that reflects the heart of God as purely and as clearly and as visibly as possible. We aren't perfect, but I know as a community here, we want to strive to get better in every way that we can. But if any way that describes you, I want to encourage you to reconsider God's great love. His invitation for you for full life now and in the life to come.